Okay, if you'll take your Bibles tonight and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And if you uh, have had for the last few weeks a fill-in-the-blank guide, if you'd like one of these, you are welcome to come on up here and grab one of those. I'm not sure that I ran enough. I kind of ran it based off of last time because we had leftovers, but um, you sort of fooled me. So if you want to come on up here and we're going to... Uh, we're kind of off just a little bit in terms of our PLOW. Uh, we normally would be eating or something tonight, but uh, Brother Dale and Miss Susan had to quarantine because of exposure to COVID. Sammy and I had to quarantine in, uh, because of COVID, and it got to thinking, <laughs> you may not want to eat with anybody right now or do anything like that because they're expecting there to be kind of a surge of it, and so... Uh, We'll try to be careful and we'll watch all of that. But there's always something that we can learn. And uh, talking about this story that we're going to look at tonight in Mark 2, you're familiar with it. Most of you are. Probably all of you are on a Sunday night. About the people that brought their paralytic friend to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I looked at that, I thought, well, there are some lessons that we can learn from this. I think that uh, in the era that most of us were raised, a lot of you uh, did like I did. You went to First Southern and Starlight every year, and man, it was exciting to see people get saved. Uh, we'd have revivals and soul-winning meetings in our churches, and man, it was excited to, exciting to see people saved. Uh, over time, though, I think that those kind of things maybe hurt us just a little bit? Say, how could that happen? Because I think we got used to inviting people to something where somebody else would do our job. Because our job is to be a witness for Christ. That's the Great Commission. That's why we're saved. And one of the things that I learned when I was a young Christian is, uh, people say, why are we still here on earth? And we'll say something like this. Oh, because God has us here to fellowship with people. Well, do you realize how much better your fellowship is going to be in heaven than it could ever be at its very best here on earth? Some people say, well, we're here because we are to worship the Lord. Well, that's true. But do you realize how much better your worship is going to be when you're not hindered by this mortal flesh any longer? And think about what it's going to be like just simply to worship the Lord as He deserves to be worshipped. Your worship is going to be better in heaven. And we would go on and on with things like that, which led me to conclude, why doesn't God take us the moment we are saved and just take us up to heaven so we can do all those things? And here's the reason that we are left on earth. Jesus said, "'Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples.'" Great Commission, right? And it dawned on me all those years ago, I won't be able to witness to a single lost person in heaven. I won't be able to disciple anybody in heaven. That's all going to be taken care of. But while we're here on earth, that's job one. And I don't find anywhere in the Bible where we are commanded or told that we can leave this to somebody else or leave it to an event. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against having events and things like we did at Thanksgiving when 
uh, Jeremy, and we've had other people uh, going back to Carl Kerrigan share the gospel at an event like that. Not opposed to that. Until it begins to substitute for the most effective way of witnessing, and that is one-on-one. That means us being ready and be equipped and being uh, available to the Lord for Him to use us to share the gospel. And the word gospel means literally good news, to share the good news. And to make sure that we're clear on that, the good news is not come to my church. Nothing wrong with inviting people to church, but I think sometimes we kind of make that more of our witness than we do about Jesus. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus died on the cross after living a perfect life, that he rose from the dead, and that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is the only way unto salvation. Now, there's a new category of people that uh, it's kind of funny because I heard somebody talking about this the other day on the radio or on a podcast, and they said uh, uh, the host was saying to the guest, Have you, uh, how would you address the growing number of nuns in the United States? The growing number of nuns in the United States, and I picture women in a penguin outfit, right? You know, it wasn't N-U-N-S, it was N-O-N-E-S. And what they went on to say was the number of people in the United States of America that when you ask them to identify their religious beliefs, they say N-O-N-E. It grew by 30% just this last year. And it's the highest percentage it has ever been in our nation. The nuns. People that say, I don't care, I don't belong, and no longer is church looked at as a good thing. Now there was a time in my life and in most of your lives where you could talk to somebody and say, uh, you know, you really ought to have your kids in church. And they would hang their head and go, yeah, you're right. That would be a good thing. And you could sometimes appeal to people to at least come to church because every good dad wanted to have their kids in Sunday school. Every good dad thought it was a good thing that their kids and their wife would be in church. They weren't opposed to that. Now it's turning into a thing where people no longer believe that. And thank you to the pedophile priests and things like that that we've all heard about. Everybody's known about that. And church is no longer looked at as just simply something that would be beneficial. Sammy and I were in Albany uh, with a group from our church. And we were going... Uh, through neighborhoods, prayer walking and talking to people that we saw out there. And never forget, there was one neighborhood. We asked a man, uh, what do you think a church could do? How do you think a church would benefit this neighborhood? And he looked up and he goes, he goes, I can't think of a way. There's no way, nothing that the church could do would benefit this. Boy, that's strange. That was so foreign to me. But that's what's creeping in even to our culture here in the Bible Belt. It's shrinking. And uh, there are fewer and fewer kids being raised in church. And so when you talk to uh, the average junior high student, they don't know who Esther is. 
They don't really know about David and Goliath. They don't know about Jesus or any of those kind of things. We are entering into a new era and things are different. And they're so different that inviting them to a mass event is probably not going to be the most effective thing that you can do because they've already been. They've been to camp. They've been to revivals. They've been to church. They've been to some of those kind of things. And let's be honest too. We live in an age where now when you invite people to something like that, a conference or uh, some mass event, you have no idea whether the guy that's preaching is actually going to share the true gospel or not. You have no idea. And so sometimes I think it might be better not to invite them to some of those events. And uh, what is the best way for you to get to know people and uh, this isn't the only way. I don't mean to say that every evangelistic event and all of that has to be you taking the time to get to know people. You can witness to anybody anywhere. And when I was in school, they used to take us out on the streets and they would teach us how to witness where you had a three-minute window before the next bus came. And they would take us to bus stations there in Dallas so that we could talk to people cold turkey and share the gospel in about three minutes before they got on the bus. I'm not against that. Nothing wrong with that. But I think one of the things we see in the story we're going to read tonight is God sometimes uses relationships and the way that we act toward other people to bring us to where we can actually share the gospel where we can actually share it effectively with someone that we love and someone that we care for. So with that being said, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. I'm going to uh, read out of the English Standard Version, so it'll be a little bit different tonight than what I normally use. And uh, Mark, chapter 2, Lessons Learned from a paralytic's friends. And that's what we want to focus on, on Jesus and a paralytic's friends tonight. What did these men do? Heard a message one time on this, and he said this is the original bus ministry. They went and picked up somebody and carried him to Jesus. And um, this is kind of what they did. They, uh, well, let's just start reading in verse 1, okay? And when he returned to Capernaum uh, after some days... It was reported that he was at home or in the house there. And uh, probably he stayed with somebody that he knew. And um, probably Peter or somebody like that. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. This is a packed out house. And at, he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And I would assume one at each corner of whatever it was they were using to carry him a blanket or a cot or whatever. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. How would you like to be that homeowner? And uh, how would you like to be that homeowner's insurance company? They removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw, now this is important, their faith, their faith, that's a plural, more than one, more than just the paralytic here. When Jesus saw their faith, 
he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They didn't even say this out loud. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They weren't wrong about that last statement. That's right. Only God can forgive sins. They just had trouble connecting the dots, didn't they? They looked at Jesus and they didn't see him as God and as the one who can forgive sins. So pick back up. And immediately, Mark always used that word immediately or straightway. He's a to-the-point kind of guy. And immediately... Jesus, look at this, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, if you look just at the number of words, it's easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, right? Then he goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I mean, he even added words to it, didn't he? He said, you want it that way? Here's the way you're going to get it. And so he uh, brought it out to them. And then the one thing that happened visibly that only God could do, that only the Son of God could do, it says, and the paralytic, he, the paralytic, rose... And immediately, there's that word again, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I uh, was thinking about that and thought about how wonderful it would have been to be one of those four guys. How wonderful it would have been to have been in the crowd that day and uh, to witness this. And hopefully not be one of the scribes or one of the Pharisees, but be one of the ones who really does glorify God and is really amazed by what goes on. And uh, we, we tend to think now, I wish God would do the same signs and wonders that he did back then. Except if you'll stop and think about that, there were probably fewer Christians per capita back then with all of the miracles going on than there are even today in the culture in which we live. Uh, people didn't necessarily believe because of all of that. They questioned. They were skeptical. It made them angry. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that the more Jesus did miracles, it seemed like the more anger came against him. And the more that the religious crowd, particularly the religious crowd, were incensed with him. And uh, they said, instead of believing in him, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to kill him. So maybe... The signs, wonders, and miracles and all of that are not really all that some people today would crack them up to be and wouldn't convince all that many people. Uh, it's got to be a work of the Holy Spirit, and it's got to be through the presentation of the gospel, which is Scripture. And Jesus, well, the, uh, Isaiah promised us 
uh, upon the authority of God that the word would never return void. And so that's a powerful and effective weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit after all. And it is the living word of God that is sharper than a two-edged sword. All of that kind of thing. And we must never ever forget that. And that's why I would also say... Be careful that when you witness to people that you don't substitute a bunch of stories and anecdotes for the Word of God because the Word of God is really where the power is. And you might say, well, people like to hear your testimony and your experience and know that you're real and know what happened to you. I don't disagree with that. That is, that is uh, very true. I would just argue, don't leave out the most important testimony and that is what God says about salvation. And so if you've got the choice between somebody hearing what you say about salvation or hearing what God has to say about salvation, here, here's a little hint. Always go with God. Okay? His, his word is much more powerful, much more credible, and does a much deeper work than yours ever will. So when we think about these uh, situations, these people, and what they are doing here, Let's think about all of this and think about maybe some uh, evangelistic implications here and then we'll pray about these things, okay? And you can fill in the blanks as we uh, put these up here. Number one, you must take an interest in them, okay? Now I say that because this guy had four friends that took him to Jesus. Now I'm going to make an educated guess that these were not four strangers that picked up that paralytic, okay? But then again, I mean, even if they were, what was the paralytic going to do about it? Because it wasn't like he could fight. It wasn't like he could defend himself. But this doesn't seem to be any kind of an adverse situation. He seems to be in the presence of friends. He seems to be with people who actually care about him and love them. And he seems to be with people that he trusts. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say they had known this paralyzed man for a while, at least long enough to have a relationship with him and where this paralyzed man actually trusts them. Now, this is the one downfall that I see for uh, people that always adv advocate cold turkey evangelism. Again, I'm not opposed to that. You ought to do that and follow the leadership of the Lord on it. But when you're talking to somebody at a bus stop or a gas station or something like that, there's one question that kind of looms in my mind. Maybe you don't think like I do, but here's what I think of. Why should they listen to me? They don't know me from Adam. They don't know if I'm truthful. They don't know if I'm a con man. And uh, I've noticed over the decades that I've been in the ministry, uh, in the early days, if you were to say, I'm a minister at such and such a church, gave you an open door that you could drive a Mack truck through. I've noticed lately when I... Uh, slip up and reveal who I am, it closes the door. You know why? Because people expect me to be a salesman for the church. After all, you want the offerings. You want the money coming in. We know how you ministers are. We know how you people are at the church. When you take somebody who is just a run-of-the-mill average person, they don't expect anybody like that to talk about the Lord. So what do I do? I try to act like just an average normal person and not a super hired holy man that's selling the church. I want to just relate to them. 
But when I think about that, why should they listen to me? And again, if they find out that I'm a pastor, they tend to shut it all off instead of listening. And so uh, when you take time, though, to get to know somebody like these four men knew the paralytic, well, then there's credibility that's built up. They get to watch your life. They get to hear the consistency of what you say. They get to see that you really love them and that you really care about them. And that's why I say take an interest in them. As you're going through the world, wherever it may be, your neighborhood, in your school, at your workplace, even in your own family, there's something that is powerful about you taking an interest in someone else. And it shows them that we're not mad at them. We're not angry at them. We are not looking down our noses at them. In fact, we love them. And we actually care about them like these four men did about their paralytic friend. And so you meet them at the point of their obvious need. So if you have the opportunity, you see a neighbor... And uh, you, maybe it's somebody that you've met. Maybe you never met them. But you notice that they're out there working on their car, maybe changing a tire. And, um, you know, you have a chance to go over and say, hey, can I help you out with that? And you meet them at that point of their need. That's an open door for something. That builds credibility. That shows that you care. It means you take interest. Now, if you're going to be like the priest and the Levite who were walking along the road when the guy uh, got beat up on his way to Jericho, then maybe don't bother. But if you're going to be like the good Samaritan, you take an interest in the person, whether you know them or not. And you could even do some things like when you're driving home from work one day and you happen to notice two blocks down from your house, there's an abnormal number of cars at that house. Could be that they're having a party. Could be that they're watching a football game or something like that. We have some people uh, that live behind us that uh, they have an outdoor kitchen and all this kind of stuff back there and uh, they're just a bunch of obnoxious Sooners as far as I'm concerned, right? And uh, boy, they hoop and holler and do all of that kind of thing. Well, that could be happening, could be happening. And uh, it, it could be any number of things, maybe a birthday party or something like that. But you know what else it could be? It could be that somebody died. And I've noticed that whenever a family loses a loved one, they're about as open as they are at any other time for ministry, for love, for compassion, for any kind of sympathy they can get because they are hurting. And when you notice something like that, you can usually kind of figure out after a while what's going on or maybe you hear something. That's a great time to bake a cake and take it over to them. That's a great time to uh, make up one of our famous Baptist casseroles and take it over to them and find a point of contact. What if uh, you ever said, Lord, I want to go and make an evangelistic contact. But I'm terrified about going door to door, and I don't know about that. Here, here's a suggestion. Go to uh, Southwest uh, Integris Medical Center or go to Baptist uh, Hospital and go to the ICU and go in their waiting room, if protocols will let you, of course, 
and go in there and just sit down and just start praying for people. And as you make contact with people and you find out their situation, talk to them about the Lord. Pray with them. Do something like that. You say, well, that, that might be kind of difficult. I get that. But it's one way of doing it, at meeting people at a point of need and a point of crisis. Um, there are all kinds of things that you can think about where people are hurting, where people are dismayed, where people are confused, where people are uh, bothered by something or rejected by someone that if we'll pay attention and if we'll actually take interest in their lives you might be able to see a point of obvious need so this prerequisite is being aware of others and it also means that we're being compassionate you know sometimes you see somebody in trouble you see somebody in a bad situation but you're too busy and you got other things to do and if you're like me I was raised to mind my own business not get involved a whole lot with anyone else but if you ask Jesus to give you a heart of compassion like he had I mean Jesus could touch lepers and change their lives Jesus had come to a funeral and turn it into a celebration why because he cared and he was involved and he was moved with compassion the Bible says even when he looked upon the multitudes he was moved with compassion. He wasn't annoyed by them. He was moved with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And this is the way we need to be. And so uh, this is how we find access points. What was the access point here? We got a guy who's paralyzed. Paralyzed guys in those days, they didn't have power wheelchairs. My friend that has ALS, they've given him a computer that... Figure this out, far beyond me. Uh, he can't use his hands anymore. He uses the retina of his eye to work the computer. Well, they didn't have that back in these days. And we don't know what the extent of the paralysis was. And we don't know what caused it. We have no idea. But he was in an absolutely helpless situation at this particular time. And these four friends met him at the point of their need. So I want to ask you, who do you know that you could meet for the glory of God at the point of need in their life? You know, when the Bible says, as we looked at in Sunday school this morning, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If, he thir if he's thirsty, give him to drink. Remember that passage? What that speaks to my heart is to say this, watch for the needs and you might even be able to win an enemy over and make him a friend. And even better than that, you might change his attitude toward you and even better than that, it might turn into an opportunity to witness. So when you have a cold-hearted, unresponsive family member or neighbor or something like that, here's what you do. Lord, I'm concerned about... Bill, and I want to have a chance to witness to him, but he just freezes me out. He shuts me out. So, Lord, I'm going to ask you to create a need in his life and let me see it and let me meet that need so that he might see that I'm not what he thinks I am. Because everybody thinks they know what Christians are. In fact, um, back last year, it was just about this time that I started having severe problems breathing. And the first place they sent me was to a pulmonologist. And I went to see him, and they ran all these tests and did all of that. And when the doctor finally came into the room, he said, So I see that you're a preacher. And I said, Yeah. He goes, What kind? 
And I said, Baptist? And he goes, well, there's a problem with your lungs. Too much hellfire and damnation. He thought he knew me. And he thought he knew what I believed. He thought he knew what I was like. So does everybody else out there. They know what Christians are like. They've met them before. They know what Christians are like. They've seen them before. They know what Christians are like. They've watched the news and heard about the scandals and those kind of things. They, they know you, quote unquote. Well, here's your chance to change their mind. And you might hear them actually say something. Well, you're a different kind of Christian than any I've ever met before. You ever had anybody say that to you? That's because they have a preconceived, prejudicial idea about what a Christian is. And that they usually are not very favorable to that. Might have been their dad or mom. Might have been their grandparents. Might have been some hypocrite that they worked with. It might have been somebody who claimed to know and love Jesus. And they were just flat out rude and mean and unresponsive. Those kind of things. We've all met those kind of people. I was uh, one time in a mall. And uh, I went into one store. And this person was as sour and is shut off and mean and uh, unhelpful. And I walked out of there thinking, I bet they're a Baptist. I walked into another store, and these people were attentive, and they were open, and they were helpful. And uh, I started to tell them about Jesus, and then they were like a word of faith charismatic type person. And I go, why is it that when you see Baptist, we think mean and sour and yet here we are claiming to have the truth. Why don't we have the joy of the Lord? And then there's someone else steeped in false doctrine. And what do you find out in them? They're, they're the kind of people that are winsome and attractive. And, and, and no wonder their churches can get so big. We've got to work on this kind of stuff. And it means we've got to take an interest in other people. It's not just about gathering here and it's not just about me and my loved ones and my family and interest in others in the world like uh, these four men did. Okay, number two. You must see their real need. Okay, this guy's got a problem. His problem is he can't move. His problem is he can't make a living. His problem is he can't defend himself. He can't take care of his family if he has one. Again, we don't know what happened. If it was a disease that he contracted, if it was something he was born with, maybe he was in an accident, fell off of his donkey and, and hurt himself or something like that, or was run over by somebody. Maybe a Roman soldier did it to him. We don't know. We don't know. But that wasn't his real need. And these four friends, as they administered to him and got to know him and built trust with him, there was a burden on their heart to get this paralytic to Jesus. And I think it would be so refreshing, so uplifting, so encouraging, and it would build us up in the faith if we looked at everybody that we came in contact with to say, man, that person needs to take a Dale Carnegie course. They're not uh, very good at what they do and nobody likes them. That's not their real need. When we look at somebody and we see them out on the street <clears throat> and uh, I started to bring and I meant to my snowman tonight because I'm still praying for my person. Hope you are too. Their needs don't end at Christmas. But I try to remember as I'm praying for them having a warm, safe place to sleep tonight is very important but it's not the real need. And you may see somebody out there that 
is going through a divorce. That's a horrible thing. But that's not their real need. You may see somebody that has lost their job and they need employment. That's a real legitimate need, but that's not their real need. And I'm impressed in this story because these people seem to see that the real need was, we've got to get this guy to Jesus. And so they built a relationship and the paralytic trusted these guys and these friends took their places and they did their part and isn't it interesting and refreshing there's no record in here that they were competing well I wanted that corner well I wanted to be at his head not his feet well I wanted to be on the other side and notice also that they didn't pull in different directions there's a little bit of teamwork here they were all working together to get this guy to Jesus and that reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants... And he who waters are one. O-N-E. I love the way this translation puts it. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. And I thought about that. Evangelism is a team effort. We don't need to just leave it up to a preacher, a revivalist, an evangelist, a missionary. This is something we all ought to be involved in. And it ought not be something that we do alone. You may be a person where you say, I am terrified to talk to somebody about Jesus, but I want to. I want to. You know what I would suggest? Find somebody who's not terrified. Somebody who is a witness. Somebody who's doing that. And just talk to them and say, Hey, I notice you seem to talk to people about Jesus a lot, and I admire that. Can I pray for you? And you know what they'll say? Absolutely. Anybody who's witnessing is really facing the heat of warfare, and they will appreciate your prayers. And uh, you can be involved in their life. And you may write down some things, the date. You may have a notebook. You write down the date. You write down what they ask you to pray for, and maybe a person that they've been witnessing to. And then when they come back and they say, Hey, you know what? The person they have in there, yeah, they got saved. Put an answer, uh, put a date down there for the answer. And as you watch your list fill up with those answered prayers, it'll build your faith. And you'll be involved in what they are doing. Maybe you ask them one time, could I go with you when you talk to people about Jesus? And that makes that person go, oh, man, maybe I need to plan to go talk to somebody. And I'll invite you to go with me. And we'll go and I'll show you how I share my faith and how I witness to them. And you can be the silent partner who was with them and who prays for them. Who takes care of the cat when he's trying to jump up in, the, in your lap or something like that. Or maybe you can play with the kid that's distracting from the witness. You can do that. You can be the silent partner and you can pray with them. That would be a good thing. That will help you and you see it in action. You could uh, get involved with somebody and you could be a helper to them, whatever that they need. 
But also as you begin to take steps to plant or to water, don't get discouraged. I didn't lead anybody to the Lord. Well, were you faithful to witness? Yeah. Well, then the Bible says you and the harvester are one and you're going to be rewarded by God no matter what part you play in all of this. Just be faithful and talk to other people about the Lord Jesus. This is a team effort. We're all in this together. And by the way, you can also take someone that you know is kind of timid or afraid. Take them under your wing. Approach them. If you're the bold one, approach them and say, Hey, would you like to go with me to talk to somebody about Jesus? Oh, I would be too afraid. Oh, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say anything. Just go. I need the support and they need the prayer. Just go and just pray and that type of thing. You can certainly do that like these four men did. And number three, you must be diligent. And I think sometimes we have this haphazard idea that, uh, you know, if it happens, it happens. God's sovereign. Well, that's certainly true. Certainly true. But that is no reason for us to be lazy. That is no reason for us to be uh, uncaring and unkind. We've got people that are lost out here. We don't know who is going to be saved and who's not. And so Jesus says, here, I'll solve the problem. Just tell everybody. Just tell everybody. That's his words, not mine, right? And so be diligent. And I notice that these people, they get this guy on the bed. They get on the four corners of the bed. They carry him to Jesus. And what do they find? Well, if the story went the way I would write it, they, they did it and it was a divine appointment and there was an opening and there Jesus was and they walked right through and people moved out of the way and everybody was excited to watch this paralyzed man come to Jesus. Except that's not the story. The house is crowded. There were people on the outside. There were people in the doorway and nobody was budging. Nobody was moving. Well, that's rude, isn't it? Why didn't they get out of the way? I mean, shouldn't they have compassion and say, this man needs to see Jesus more than I do? But you know, everybody kind of has their own agenda. And I don't know what that culture in that day was particularly like because I never lived there. But sometimes the way that they would speak and talk and act, it's kind of a rough culture, wasn't it? It wasn't necessarily the most open and hospitable thing. You get the idea that these people around here are saying, wait your turn, go to the end of the line. And so what did these men do? Well, they uh, climb up on the house, try doing that with a paralyzed man on a bed, and they get up there, and then they just start taking the roof apart, taking the tiles apart, and then they lower the guy down there in front of Jesus, and the Lord blessed it. And when I say be diligent, I'm thinking about these people that wouldn't let anything stop them. There was opposition. I'm going to guess there was even some open hostility among people that, you know, I've been waiting out here outside the door to get in to see Jesus and you're taking a shortcut and coming down through the roof. Come on. You know, what's up with this? So expect opposition. Overcome barriers. You know, sometimes we are the, the people. Now, salesmen, I used to do door-to-door -door sales, and they told us that you'll get about one sale for every eight contacts that you make. So if you want to be a millionaire, they calculated it all. Here's how many contacts you're going to have to make on average. Now, sometimes it's 12 or 13 or 20 before you get a sale, and then other times it's two. So it kind of averages out to around eight. Can you imagine what it must be like 
If you and I were to go out and talk to every person we know, how many of them do you think would trust Christ? How many of them do you think would be open? How many of them do you think would give you a fair hearing? And I'm going to guess you're going to run into some opposition and some people that will, I've heard that before, not interested, not interested, slam the door in your face or whatever. You're going to have those kind of things. And let me ask you a question. Has it stopped you? Has it made you shut your mouth? Well, you need to expect opposition, and maybe we need to be a little more diligent, and maybe even like these guys, a little more creative. Okay, if I can't do it that way, if that shuts everything up, then Lord, what way can I get into their lives? And that would take us back to point one, where we're compassionate, and we watch for a need so that it gives us an open door. But these people were just men who wouldn't be stopped, couldn't be stopped, whether there was uh, opposition, hostility, barriers, and they used their creativity for all of that. And they had an expectation. Okay, let me just uh, speak to you about this. They had an expectation that if they could just get this guy to Jesus, something great was going to happen. Now, I want to ask you a question. What kind of faith do you have in the gospel? Not, not for yourself, but for someone else. What kind of faith do you have? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1.16. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Just how much do you believe that? How much in your heart do you really look at somebody and say, Oh, if I could only share the gospel with them, their life could be changed. <coughs> They could be born again. How much do you really believe that? Or do you do it with the idea that, well, I guess I'm just no good at this. What are you, a salesman? You're not the salesman. That's the Holy Spirit's job to bring people to faith in Christ, right? This is the word of God that we're giving them. We don't know what's going to happen. And we don't know whether the seed's going to fall on good ground or whether it's going to fall on stony ground or whether it's going to fall on a, a, the ground where all the weeds are or whether it's going to fall on the path where the birds just pick it up and eat it. We have no idea. And it's not ours to know, is it? We just simply share the gospel. And we keep on doing it. And look, if we're afraid because somebody shut us out or rejected us or slammed the door in our face, man, I'm glad we're not the ones in Iran or North Korea or China or something like that because the gospel would never get out. You look at the early church and they persevered in spite of the opposition and God did great things. If you want to reap a good harvest, you've got to scatter a lot of seeds. And uh, that is the thing that I don't see very many people, and I include myself in that, doing with the diligence that we ought to do. We've got to expect God to bless. Okay, let's wrap this up. Number four, you must have faith and be faithful. Where did I get that? Because Jesus said as they were lowering that man when he saw their faith. Could have said his faith. It wasn't the faith of the paralytic that did anything. It was maybe the faith of the paralytic and those four guys, or maybe just the four guys. Maybe the paralytic didn't know anything. Jesus saw their faith, their faith. And I think as we look at this thing about witnessing, it really does come down to our faith, that we've got to 
believe and we have got to persevere and you will only persevere to the extent that you believe. This has got to be something we are passionate about and you've got to be convinced. I've written some things down here uh, for you that you've got to be convinced that people are dead spiritually and unable to get to Jesus. Paralytic had no hope. He was as good as dead, wasn't he? Well, that's everybody that you run in contact with that doesn't uh, that has not trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. You got to believe that. You can't just look around and say, "I wish they'd do better. I wish they'd make better decisions. I wish they'd get their life right with God." They can't. They can't. You've got to deliver the message to them and bring them to Jesus. You also got to be convinced that hell is real. And I wonder how many people really believe. That their friends, their loved ones, their co-workers, their family members, their neighbors are going to an eternal hell, a lake of fire, <coughs> if they don't repent and believe the gospel. We've got to get that in our hearts and in our minds. I see people all the time, maybe even some of you, where there's a celebrity, a famous person, and they die. And this is a person who does not profess faith. And they go, rest in peace, so-and-so. Are you kidding me? They're not resting in peace. The Bible says there's no rest in hell. And there's no rest for the wicked. That is something that ought to break our hearts. That people are dying and going to hell. In fact, Spurgeon, a five-point Calvinist, by the way, said, if sinners are to be condemned to hell, let them be condemned over us standing in the way. Paraphrase. That ought to be the way it is, to where we realize hell is a horrible place. It's a real place. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven, and uh, he believed it was real. We should, too. We need to believe that Jesus is the only way. You can't get there by anything or any way else. You say, well, what they go to is a church, and they talk about Jesus if it's not the gospel as defined in the Bible, it doesn't get them to Jesus. You've got to be able to trust Christ as Savior and Lord and full payment for your sins. That is the only way. And we've got also to understand that God uses not the celebrities, not the famous, not those kind of people, but most of the time when people are saved, in the vast majority of the time, He uses the unknown, He uses the unnamed, and the ordinary believer to bring others to Christ. Say, uh, prove it, okay? The guy that was at the paralytic's bed on the top, the head of the bed on the right-hand side in the front, what, what, what's his name? You have no idea. Jesus doesn't bother to give the names of anybody, not even the paralytic. You know why? Because in the whole scheme of things, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a Paul. You don't have to be an Apostle Peter. You don't have to be a Billy Graham or anybody like that. God uses ordinary people, unknown people like you and like me to carry out his work. We're the ones that he has commanded to go. And you've got to believe that God's word, the gospel of Christ, will never be empty. It won't return void, as the Bible says. And then number five, this is taken from the very last part of it. This whole paragraph and this whole story ends with people were amazed and they glorified God. Now that's what we're really after. That's what we're really after. Why should you be a witness? Well, because people are lost and on their way to hell. True. But that's not a high enough motivation. 
Why should you witness? Because we want the church to grow. I do too. But that's not really the reason to witness. You know what the reason to witness is? So God can be glorified in that situation. God is glorified when you witness, even if the person doesn't trust Christ. And God is certainly glorified in your witness if they do trust Christ. And we want people to be amazed, not at us and not at our skill and not at our boldness or anything like that. Who cares? Who cares? We just want our God to be glorified. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. That's what is important in everything that we do, especially in witnessing. So aim high. The real thing is the glory of God. And so the real issue is not us or the people that we lead to Christ. The real issue is the glory of God. It glorifies God when he puts new life in a dead sinner. It glorifies God when someone is changed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It glorifies God whenever there is something that is inexplicable by human ability. You know, uh, I've got this feeling that when a nobody like one of us leads somebody to faith in Christ and their life is changed, that that means and impacts a whole lot more than when they go to hear some celebrity preacher speak and they trust Christ. Well, of course they do. That guy's good. That guy is well-trained. That guy is very well-polished. That guy is persuasive. But when somebody gets saved because we witness to them and they look at that and they shake our heads and go, why would they believe you and trust you? Well, they didn't. They trusted in Christ. This is actually a work of God. It's not my work. And their life is changed, not because they joined an organization or because they met a certain person. Their life is changed because they have come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. And uh, we want them to see that humans could never, never um, be the um, restorers, the savers. We could never be the ones that put lives back together. We just don't have the capability of doing that. And when people see that their life is put back together and we didn't do it, that gives glory to God. Humans could never forgive sins. I mean, with all... Um, good theology and understanding of the word of God, it's very clear that only God can forgive sins. You can see a million priests and they can all say to you, I absolve you of your sins. They don't have that right. And they certainly don't have that power. These skeptics here are right about one thing, only God can forgive sins. I wish we believed that. And I, be I wish we saw the power in that, that anybody can be saved by the grace of God and by his uh, atonement, the forgiveness of sins, and to all see that this is the work of Christ. And I would love it if people would see that all of us are living and functioning in the work of something inexplicable. It's explained only by what God can do. That would be a miracle. So I want you to think about some things. It's at the bottom of your paper if you got one of those. Uh, what do you need to pray for about yourself. Maybe you're a person who you say, well, I try to witness and all I do is make people mad. Well, that's probably going to happen from time to time. But if it's happening every time, 
maybe you need to do a little praying and evaluating about the way you approach people and about the way you come across to people. I used to think I was doing a great work for God if I made people mad. Well, I've come to find out that's not the goal. The goal is that they would receive the gospel and be saved and that Christ would be glorified. And I started finding out if I act like a jerk when I'm doing it, if I'm arrogant, and sometimes I'm afraid we as Christians come across with this idea of, hey, let me, let me tell you what you don't really know, dumb guy. He said, ah, I would never say that. Yeah, but sometimes it comes across like that. Maybe we need to figure out a little bit different approach or a way to talk to somebody. Maybe you like to argue. I used to think that witnessing was a matter of debating and winning the debate. Imagine my surprise when I read in the Bible that the natural mind cannot receive the things of God because they are spiritually, not intellectually, spiritually discerned. And I thought if I could win the argument, then they would fall down and get on their knees and confess Christ as Lord. And I didn't understand why that wasn't happening. My approach was all wrong. I wasn't coming across with kindness, with grace, with mercy, with concern, with compassion. I was coming across arrogant. I am going to tell you, little person, what it is that you need. Can, can you imagine anything more off-putting than that? The Bible says that we are to honor all men. Peter wrote that in his epistle. And that means even when you're witnessing to somebody, you need to show them respect and show them honor. What needs to be your prayer tonight about yourself? Maybe you haven't really thought much about witnessing, but you realize, I need to be a witness. That might be something that you write down. You might write down... I need to be more concerned about people. I need to be more aware of the needs of people around me. Maybe you're kind of an isolated person and uh, you need to get out a little more or get to know people a little more, but you're not good at it or maybe you don't have a great personality. And uh, how, how can I do that? Well, again, being aware of their needs and stepping in, not being nosy, not intruding, not doing that, but actually caring and meeting those needs. So I'd like for you to think about that. And uh, then the next question down here is, what do you need to pray that other Christ about or with other Christians like you? Um, what I mean by that, that kind of came across more awkward than I meant it to. Um, think about this. If you struggle with witnessing, I'm going to make you a promise here. Okay, You're not the only one in this group that struggles with witnessing. Well, I'm afraid. Well, I don't know what to say. Well, I'm afraid they'll ask me a question I can't answer. On and on and on we go. Listen, I'm going to promise you, you're not the only one, and you're probably not in the minority. And so um, I want to ask you to do something tonight, to pray for the person who is sitting by you, for them to become a compassionate witness for Jesus Christ and the glory of God. Say, so why would you have us do that? Well, because number one, they need it, right? Like we all do. Number two, I believe that if you'll pray for others, others will pray for you. Number three, I believe God will honor it. And number four, I believe it'll start putting a realization and a fire in your heart that I don't just need for Sammy to be a witness, I need to be a witness. 
And Sammy's thinking, I don't just need to pray for Greg to be a witness. I need to be a witness. And it raises, well, a rising tide, President Reagan said, raises all the boats. Well, that's what we really want. And that's what we're shooting for here, for the tide to rise in witnessing and evangelism. And then the third question is this, who's on your heart? I believe every Christian ought to have at least one person on their heart when it comes to witnessing. Somebody they're burdened to that they are at least praying for. You know, Jesus did tell us, don't look, look out on the fields and say, oh, it's six months and then the harvest. He said the fields are already white, ready to be harvested. And what did he tell us to pray for? Not the harvest. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest. You know, if you start thinking about people and how they need to be saved, and maybe they're a person that you go, oh, I don't think I could ever talk to them, but you pray for the Lord to open the door for someone to talk to them, I promise you it's going to change your heart. Maybe the Lord says, it's you. Maybe he sends someone else. It doesn't really matter. Our heart is for them to hear the gospel and to be saved. We ought to be concerned. We ought to be burdened. And we ought to pray because the only hope that they have is the only hope that we have. And that is God saving people through the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to ask you as we conclude here, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to do some thinking. What needs to change in you for you to be a faithful, a faithful witness for Christ? We'll leave the effectiveness up to God. But the faithfulness is something we need to do. What needs to change? You might want to write it down. You might want to put it on your prayer list. You might want to ask somebody else, pray for me. Pray for me. I'm hard-hearted. I'm uncaring. Just think about that. Secondly, I want you to pray for the person who is sitting by you. And pray for them that they would fulfill the Great Commission. That they would plant or water or reap the harvest. Or maybe even all three. Would you pray that God would overcome their fears, their failures, their stumbles? That God would overcome their pride. That God would overcome their fear of man. That God would build their faith in the power of the gospel. That God would make them obedient for his glory. Just begin to pray for them like that. Pray that for our church. And then thirdly, is there a person on your heart? A friend? A relative, a work or school associate, maybe a neighbor. And it may be the furthest thing from your heart right now to witness to them, except there is something inside of you that cares about their eternal destiny. Would you at least pray for them to be saved? Would you at least ask God to send someone to them. You say, well, I'm afraid if I do, it might be me. It might be. It might be. But let's give it a start. And let's be concerned.
Can you at least hand them a track? There's still tracks up here from uh, Christmas season. They, they ought to be gone tonight. Think about it. Think about it. Can we close together? Heavenly Father, we realize that there's a big barrier to us being the witnesses that we want to be. And as much as we'd like to say it's society or it's the lost people and their closed minds, well, they've always been that way because they've always been dead spiritually. The culture that we live in, whatever. Can we just get honest tonight, Lord? It's us. We need to change. And I pray that you would address those things with your love, mercy, grace, and with your power and with your discipline to change us to where we understand our responsibility to share our faith and that we would actually care about it. And Lord, we pray that that would not just be for us, but for the people we're sitting by, for the people we go to church with every week, that this place would become a lighthouse in a dark world for Jesus Christ. That our church would be on fire for the Lord Jesus. That we would be bold, salt and light, speaking up and telling people about the great and wonderful news that God, in His mercy and love, sent His Son to be the payment for our sin. And Christ was butchered on a cross so that we might have our sin debt forgiven. That he rose from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father as Lord of all. And that he is returning. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we're to share that wonderful news. That it's not of works lest any man should boast. It's by the grace of God through faith. And Father, I want to pray that you would put at least, at least a person on our heart that we might pray for daily, regularly, and that we might have them on our minds that they're lost and that Jesus is the only way that they would be saved and that you would send laborers into your harvest and you would do it for your glory and you would bring us to the point to where we could be one of the ones that you send and be faithful, and to be fruitful, and that you would supply the effectiveness in our lives. Help us to realize we'd have no greater joy than to lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ. So I pray you would do this, and pray you would honor this, and we pray this because we believe it's in your will. We believe it accurately reflects your command and your word, and we want to be found faithful and set a good example for the generations to come and it's in jesus name that we pray amen okay thank you so much for your time tonight and uh, the sheets are up here if you want to pick up one of those before you leave tracks up here if you want to pick them up before you leave mission 405 tomorrow don't uh, forget about that